It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Tom Shalhoub. I'm Maria Bartiromo, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, August 8th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. If the 2024 presidential contest feels like a jump ball 15 months out, it may be because some polls have a former president and the current one neck and neck. Even if voters say they do not want a Trump-Biden rematch. I don't think there's a lot of opportunity for more than one or possibly two non-Trump candidates to emerge. I'm Dave Anthony. Gas has been pumped up to the highest price this year, and it could get more expensive. There's going to be an oil supply squeeze, and if oil starts to get back up towards $90 a barrel or $100 a barrel, which some people think is possible later in this year, I can't take $4 a gallon off the table. And I'm Brian Kilmeade. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Even with quite a Republican bench and a couple polls showing Robert F. Kennedy Jr. with double digits on the Democrat side, this race still appears to be between the current president and the former one. President Biden right now is at the beginning of a three-state tour in the West, starting in the swing state of Arizona, mostly highlighting what his team has labeled Bidenomics. Inflation is now at the lowest point it's been in over two years. In fact, we have the lowest rate of inflation among the world's major economies. Every major economy in the world, our inflation rate is lower. Meanwhile, former President Trump is blasting out truth social posts as his legal team navigates his latest indictment. The third one charges him with four felony counts over January 6th. He sparred with Fox News special report anchor Brett Baer in late June after the first two indictments had come out over how well he does with certain independent voters. This is how you're going to tell that independent suburban no, woman no, voter no, to vote for you. We're off to winning an election, and I think we're winning very well. Uh, I got a poll just recently. I have it here. I'd no, no, show I you. know. And, and I watched but the numbers. I've shown you every poll. I showed you we were leading by tremendous numbers you know and we're change. leading with women, huh? You know polls change. While the polls have this as a matchup between Biden and Trump, other Republicans are pointing out the obvious. It is still really early here. Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis told Fox's Harris Faulkner recently. This is a long process. You got to be on the ground. You got to be going to all these small towns in Iowa, New Hampshire. We're doing that. Polling has Trump dominating the GOP ticket, though. A New York Times poll has found former President Trump and President Biden each with 43 percent in a hypothetical matchup. When it comes to Biden, a new poll found just 37 percent approve of his handling of the economy. A new Ipsos poll finds, while just over half of those surveyed think Trump should have been indicted over January 6th, more think the charges were politically motivated than do not. Just over half of independents think the charges are serious. And after you figure out what each base wants, it is all up to the independent voter class after all, right? You have independents who are allowed to participate in open and semi-open primaries on the Republican side. Darren Shaw is co-director of the Fox News poll and a government professor at UT Austin. So, for instance, in Texas, um, we have open primaries and anybody who wants to vote in the Republican primary who's a registered voter can vote in the Republican primary. Um, We have semi-open or semi-closed it's you know those two things are very similar uh primaries like new hampshire where republicans can vote in the republican primary democrats can vote in the democratic primary and independents or people registered declined to state their party preference 
they can go either way. They can vote in mm. either the Republican or the Democratic primary. So in some of these early states, South Carolina is an open primary. Uh, New Hampshire is a semi-open primary. Independents can actually participate in the Republican Party's uh, selection process. So that, that that's one level, right? These independents, if they if they think there's more action going on the Republican side, could come over and vote, and they bring their preferences with them. That's one level. The second level is um, the non-Trump candidates are, are, you know, so everybody with the exception of uh, maybe Ramaswamy, maybe uh, uh, one or two others are kind of running as the heirs to Trump or kind of occupying for some reason a Trump lane. Mm-hmm. But everybody else is trying to be the non-Trump candidate. And one of the arguments they would like to make is that Trump is not electable because independents aren't going to support him in November of 2024. Uh, But the polling data, as you alluded to up front, aren't really showing that. It's not that independents like Trump very much. They clearly don't. But other candidates aren't running all that much stronger Mm. with the general electorate than Trump is. Until that happens, that argument is going to be very difficult to make. Um, You know, I think part of it is actually due to the fact that people don't really know about Tim Scott or Nikki Haley or some of these other uh, Republicans. Yeah. I, I was just yeah. going to, Darren, I was just going to ask how much of this campaign at this point, knowing what, what we know, it, how much of this is going to be about Trump? Like, are we going to see these other Republican candidates grow pretty frustrated if he's dominating every conversation and Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, you know, can't get those policy points in? Yeah, I, I think that's where the contest is. It's I, I don't think there's a lot of opportunity for more than one or possibly two non-Trump candidates to emerge. So is that even going to be a a possibility? Um, And if so, what's the dynamic by which it unfolds, right? So I can see a scenario where, you know, a candidate comes, has a tremendous debate performance, just does a really good job and gets some traction. Um, And is that enough to sustain, uh, you were alluding to, you know, donors who may be bailing out from DeSantis. Uh, Do they turn to uh, the flavor of the day? You know, if Tim Scott has a moment in a debate or Nikki Haley or, you know, Mike Pence or whomever, does that create enough momentum? And is there a quickly forming consensus that that candidate is the non-Trump candidate? Um, I don't know. I mean, you're right. You've got to dominate the small set of moments available to non-Trump candidates in order to make that happen. And I'm not sure, you know, the, the counterpoint would be in 2020 when Joe Biden, you know, gets whacked in the first three primary contests, you know, caucuses, doesn't do well in Iowa, Mm -hmm. doesn't do well in New Hampshire, doesn't do well in Nevada, does well in South Carolina, which everybody predicted. And yet every single Democrat basically sort of fell in line behind Biden. Could you see something like that on the Republican side, where the non-Trump vote consolidates and consolidates quickly based on, you know, just sort of somewhat suggestive information um <laughs> that's possible but it's equally not possible i think i'm i'm i hate to be torn on this i'm supposed right. to bring some kind of expertise but <laughs> i don't know i don't know i think everybody's um dealing with some ambivalence here just because at the same time that everyone says they don't want a trump biden rematch it appears that's what we're getting right um tell me <laughs> yeah. darren about you know president biden obviously he sees this need to prove that as tough as things have been with the economy, that he's still the guy to handle it, that he, he's at the helm, making it get better, helping it get better, inflation's down. And lurking in the background is, of course, Republicans' push regarding Hunter Biden. Obviously, we saw the plea deal that he had made fall apart. And, and I'm just wondering, 
even if he hashes out a new deal, which of course one would presume he would either, you know, do a new deal or go through a trial, which seems unlikely. Um, how much is this going to impact the president's campaign? If, if Republicans are sort of beating the drum on yeah. and insisting that the president was involved in Hunter's business deals and sort of they keep talking about that. Yeah. Does that seep into voter consciousness? Is that is that a poll question? <laughs> yeah, I think it is. And I think it's manifest in some of the questions we've been asking about candidate favorability and then specific candidate traits. One thing Joe Biden has always had is the perception that he he cares about regular people. You know, he's he's average Joe, you know, both because of his sort of the geography of his origins, whether it's Scranton or, you know, Delaware, but also because he's he does have some sort of blue collar credentials. I, I remember Richard Ben Kramer's book, What It Takes on the 88 campaign. There was basically I don't remember if this was exactly what Kramer said, but he basically described Biden as sort of a blue collar Kennedy family. Right. That the, the sort of Catholic origins. But instead of having all this wealth and affluence, they kind of worked their way up. But it was the same sort of competition and political ambition and engagement. Um, but that's always been something Biden brought to the table. If the Hunter Biden stuff casts him as in it for himself, as a, just another corrupt politician kind of making deals with the, you know, through his son with the Ukrainians and the Chinese, all of a sudden that favorability advantage that he has over Trump dissipates. And it has been dropping very, very quickly. And then you get to a dynamic like you had in 2016, where it's a, a group of voters. I think in the in 2016, I think it was 16 percent of voters said they were unfavorable towards Trump and unfavorable towards Clinton. And they broke decisively for Trump. Um, I, I don't know that they would break decisively one way or another, but Biden can't afford to have 15 to 20 percent of the electorate saying that both of them are bad people. Um, you know, that that's an edge he's enjoyed in almost all of his elections. And if that comes down, and especially if the particular trait I'd, I'd, I'd encourage everybody to, to watch is um, what we call an empathy measure, really cares about people like you. You know, we have strong leadership, honest and trustworthy, but that empathy measure, Biden has always done really well on that number. And if he doesn't, I think it really eradicates maybe his biggest kind of trade advantage going into that election. Okay, finally, DeSantis. He can't seem to gain traction if you believe the polls, at least not yet. We saw a big donor to the super PAC supporting him say that he won't give any more money until he sees other donors jump in too. And he said he wants DeSantis to move away from the woke stuff and start appealing to moderates. A couple of articles over the weekend had referenced the focus of DeSantis's and Vivek Ramaswamy on woke cultural issues your pollster, is it time to shift away from that? Is it time to just, you know, focus on on sort of the, the big things, the economy and the woke stuff should get mentioned in a different way or as an aside? Or if you're advising candidates, the Republican side on this, what would you say? Yeah, I, I think that woke issues, social issues generally, if you think of them as a cluster, including things like uh, you know, gender politics, abortion, going back in the day, school prayer, LGBTQ, all, all of that stuff clusters together kind of uneasily as, as social issues. Republicans have actually done okay on those issues over the years when they're framed in terms of tradition and family and values. Um, and and I, I think there's been sort of more of a negative kind of lashing out by DeSantis and his campaign on those issues rather than an affirmation of kind of traditional 
values-based, religious-based um, positions on those issues. So I think part of it is a framing issue. You know, we like presidential candidates to be uplifting and to define a vision. Um, and instead, what you've really gotten is a statement of the grievance. That's sort of one element of it. Another is it's 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 unclear how he's distinct from Trump on these things. De- DeSantis has tried to position himself as the champion of, of anti-woke policies. But, but Trump came to the table in 2016 kind of arguing against political correctness. It's kind of a, you know, a... Uh, yesterday's version of woke politics was arguing against political correctness. Um, It's not clear how much traction there is there. And I think you're right that what's happened is the emphasis on those issues has, you know, crowded out the perception of DeSantis's agenda to the point where it's unclear. What is he saying with respect to the economy? What is he saying with respect to foreign policy? Those sort of dinner table issues that voters really want to hear about. Um, I think he's missed a real bet to more strongly articulate the problem with the Biden administration's economic policies. Um, you know, Trump has got his record to run on from, you know, 2017 to 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, DeSantis has a Florida record, but it's been kind of in the background a little bit. Um, and, you know, economics are critical here. And, you know, you mentioned the Biden team seems to know that. They're desperately trying to rebrand the president on economics. We'll see how successful they are. But I think DeSantis has missed an opportunity when the spotlight is shown on him, you know, to say, here are the three things I want to do. If woke politics is one of them, that's fine. I think it's been defined to the exclusion of, you know, items one and two on his three-point agenda, let's say. Um, You know, as a number three, it's pretty good. As your number one, I'm not so sure that's where you want to be. Darren Shaw, professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Brian Kilmeade with your Fox News commentary coming up. President Biden is in Arizona. He'll also visit Utah and New Mexico this week, pushing an economic agenda that his administration touts as Bidenomics. My dad used to have an expression for a grown-up, my word. He said, Joey, a job's a lot of, about a lot more than the paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about being able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay and mean it. That's Bidenomics. Well, his top White House economic advisor, Jared Bernstein, says Bidenomics is working. We have a, 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 an unemployment rate that's been below 4% uh, for over a year and a half. That's a 50-year record. Bernstein told Fox News Sunday last month. Inflation now down two-thirds off of its peak. If you and I were talking a year ago, inflation would have been two-thirds higher than it is today. The gas price down a buck fifty. Well, since then, gas prices have surged back up about 30 cents in the last month to new New highs for the year with regular around 382 a gallon, according to AAA, and it has Republicans blaming the president. Joe Biden immediately shut down. He immediately, first thing, almost the first day, shut down the Keystone XL pipeline, surrendered our energy independence and future dominance. Former President Trump, the GOP 2024 frontrunner, campaigning in South Carolina there over the weekend. The price at the pump was not expected to rise like it has. A couple weeks ago, people were kind of, you know, waving the victory flag, like, oh, gasoline prices are going to start coming down. We got through, you know, the 4th of July holiday and prices were easing off. Phil Flynn is a Fox business contributor. 
senior market analyst at the Price Futures Group. I was concerned. And one of the reasons why I've been concerned is if you look at, you know, U.S. oil inventories, you look at U.S. gasoline inventories, they're at historically low levels. So what that means is there's no room for error in the system. So, for example, we had a heat wave, we lost a refinery, you know, all of those things reduced supply just a little bit. But the price impact was huge because we're running on empty all the time. And when you run on empty, you're taking your chances because when you run out of gas, the prices spike. All right. So when you talk about oil, that price has gone up lately, back over 80 bucks a barrel. Why? It's gone up for a multitude of reasons, but really one of the main reasons is, is that the demand globally continues to astound the experts. Global oil demand is higher than it's ever been. And what's more, in the second half of the year, we expect the world to keep breaking records. Now, this is coming at a time when we've artificially lowered prices here in the U.S. by releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So they kind of you know, took away the pain earlier on. And while that was a good thing in the short term, in the big picture, it really hurt us because it discouraged investment in U.S. oil and gas production. And now, when that oil is gone, which it is, when the market tightens, we're really putting ourselves at the mercy of what's happening overseas. That's OPEC, that's Russia, who both said that they're going to cut production um, over the next couple of months. So the supplies are going to tighten a lot. That means the pain in the pump, while you may see some ups and downs here a little bit, it's still going to remain very high. You know, the other day I read from a AAA spokesperson that we are seeing demand in the U.S. go down. And the thought was that supply is going to rise with the refinery back online, as you spoke with the heat wave, that the price may actually go back down the price of gas. Do you agree with that? Listen, I mean, this time of year, you know, we can have a little bit of a peak in demand. Oil prices can level off. And, and when we get into winter, prices normally go down anyway, because we're not burning the summer blends of gasoline. But I take issue with the demand side of that comment, right? One of the things that we've seen uh, from these reporting agencies, not just AAA, but even the Department of Energy, is that they've admitted that over the last six months, they've woefully underreported demand, right? The way that they've been calculating the demand numbers, they've been missing by a wide margin. In fact, just recently, the Energy Information Administration had to raise their demand estimates by almost 790,000 barrels a day. That's huge. And so because the data that we've been getting on the demand side hasn't been that reliable, this is another reason why we're seeing the supply squeeze that we shouldn't be seeing you know, in this country. And besides, I looked out the window, I don't see that many electric cars. So I think gasoline demand is going to be strong for some time to come. You know, the electric vehicle push continues, however, and the U.S. continues to increase what they are going to set for the fuel efficiency standards year in and year out. We may get to the point where fuel efficiency standards by 2032 for the U.S. car fleet, vehicle fleet, will be double what we are now, and that's by 2032. We're talking about less than 10 years from now. Can we get there as more people shift to electric? I don't think we can. And, and that's the problem. And that's what we're hearing from Detroit and the big automakers. They're saying that these regulations are, are crazy and it's actually going to put the U.S. 
automaker at a huge disadvantage. And the other thing is, is that why are we doing this? You know, what environmental benefit are we really going to get out of these draconian measures? And the answer is not that much, because it takes more fossil fuels to create an electric car than it does a regular internal combustion engine. And most of these cars to get a net positive on the environment to make back for all of that strip mining and, you know, um, chemicals and stuff to make those electric batteries, um, you might have to drive the cars anywhere from 60 to 100,000 miles to get a net benefit of the environment. And then the question becomes, if we're going to be charging all these cars, how can we do it with a power grid that already is on the verge of breaking down? So this is pie in the sky kind of regulations. And it's one of the things that is going to drive up the cost of gasoline. It's going to drive up the cost of vehicles. And, and sadly, when you make these kind of um, projections, it really hurts the poor and the middle class more than anyone. So the elite are going to do fine, but the poor and middle class might not be able to afford to drive a car. All right, let's shift to diesel because that price has actually gone up at a faster rate than regular gas has lately. We're back to around 420 a gallon for diesel and that is well a lot less than last year. It's like, you know, more than 30 cents in a month for diesel. That of course affects shipping, it affects trucking. Where are we there? Uh, we're in a bad situation globally for diesel. And one of the things that have been driving diesel prices here in the United States has been panic buying in Europe. And if you look at the European gas oil, which is their diesel contract, it's going back up, you know, towards the record highs that we saw a year ago. And part of the problem is because of the green energy transition and because of the war in Ukraine and, and sanctions on heavier types of oil. It's, it's the fact that we don't have enough oil in refining capacity to meet growing demand. You know, really last year, the only reason why diesel prices came down is because we had one of the warmest winters in the United States and in Europe almost ever, right? And the problem is we can't depend on that to happen again this year. So if we get a winter that's more normal, and if I look at diesel inventories, which here in the United States, I believe are about 15% below the five-year average, we're going to see a price squeeze. And when you squeeze the cost of diesel, gasoline gets dragged along for the ride. When the price of gas hit a record high last year, with regular topping five bucks a gallon, there was concern the economy would go in the tank in a deep recession. Well, that didn't happen. And consumer prices have come down, but Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell is still wary. High inflation imposes significant hardship as it erodes purchasing power, especially for those least able to meet the higher cost of essentials like food, housing, and transportation. Now, that was after yet another interest rate hike last month to the highest level in 22 years. And Phil Flynn thinks Powell is right to be cautious. You got a little bit of a break in the oil prices, and that helped ease inflationary concerns. But the underlying problem with the oil market hasn't gone away, right? We still have taken steps to discourage investment in fossil fuels, but we haven't really been able to figure out how to slow demand enough 
um, to keep up. And so what we're running into for the second half of this year is probably one of the most significant, you know, supply versus demand deficits that we've seen maybe in 20 years. And so it's very possible that the uh, a price spike in the uh, oil market could actually derail the economic recovery and make that soft landing that everybody's been predicted a lot more bumpy. Do you think we'll get back to $4 a gallon for regular gas this year? Well, I'll tell you what, it's getting late in the summer. Generally, that happens in the summer. So we always get about a 10 to 15 cent break in gasoline as we go into winter. So it's it's not off the table, but it's less likely. But look at we're already at the 380. So it's possible we could get there, but you're going to have to keep an eye on oil. Okay, there's going to be an oil supply squeeze, and if oil starts to get back up towards ninety dollars a barrel or a hundred dollars a barrel, which some people think is possible later in this year, I can't take four dollars a gallon off the table. Okay, you've been talking about winter. I know it's August, but looking ahead, what can people expect for heating oil or the one that obviously affects people more, natural gas? Well, the natural gas market, we've been blessed with some record production. And so prices have been moderately low. Um, In Europe, of course, which is one of the reasons why we drove up our natural gas prices a a couple of years ago, was because they needed our supply. Um, So far in Europe, they've topped up their supply of natural gas, so they're pretty good right now. But um, make no mistake about it, if we get a cold winter in Europe, it's going to drive up our natural gas prices. And back to heating oil, if you're heating your home with heating oil, be prepared for a potential price spike this winter. Um, You have to be on guard. And, you know, I tell people this not to scare them, but to be prepared because you're going to have bills to pay and people are going to have to fill that tank. And I remember a couple of years ago talking to people that, you know, basically got their bill from the heating oil company to refill their tanks and, you know, they couldn't afford it. So just be prepared for a potential spike. I hope it doesn't happen. I hope we have a mild winter, but be prepared because we could see a significant price spike um, at, for home heating oil um, if, if Mother Nature isn't kind to us. Phil Flynn, Senior Market Analyst at the Price Futures Group, Fox Business Network contributor. Always great to get your insight. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. the news now you can with instant updates from fox news for amazon alexa just say alexa play news from fox in fox news it's the latest when you need it on demand from fox news and amazon alexa subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com it's time for your fox news commentary brian Kilmeade. what's on your mind Hi everyone, I'm Brian Kilmeade, and this is the Fox News Rundown. I want to talk about the biggest tournament in the world right now, and I'm talking about Women's World Cup. Fox runs it, do an incredible job with commentators given total freedom. Why do I know that? Because it was Coley Lloyd who took the two-time world champions, which he was a part of, and called them to task for the way they acted after barely qualifying for the knockout round to the World Cup. For Alexi Lawless, for admitting what we all know. The World Cup team is polarizing. Why? Because of their stance on pay, because of their 
activism off the field and for taking a knee during the national anthem and acting ambivalent when it was playing now. Having said all that, had they become the dominant team of the world again, people would have looked past it. They want to love this team. Everybody wants to root for red, white, and blue. The question is, do you want to root for red, white, and blue when it, the team doesn't seem thrilled to be representing the United States? When they go and beat Vietnam just 3 nothing, it should have been a five-alarm fire. It wasn't. When they hold on and come back to beat the Netherlands, to tie the Netherlands, they should have realized we got some problems, but they didn't act. When they go ahead and tie Portugal and sneak in to the knockout round, this should have been a time for a rapid transformation, a come-to-mama moment. But it didn't happen. And now you have a knockout with Sweden. And Megan Rapino comes off the bench in her final game to miss a penalty kick. The best players in the world to miss penalty kicks. But not ones that spend the majority of their career calling out other people. And in the end, they lose a heartbreaker. But what this team has got to win is win back respect to the rest of the world and win back the American public. Or as Alexi Lala says, they will become irrelevant. I'm Brian Kilmeade, and this is the Fox News Rundown. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Hey, it's Will Kane, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend. Join me as I share my thoughts on a wide range of topics, from sports and pop culture to politics and business. The Will Kane Podcast. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.